the kids or what happened. But I just wanted to say a word of thanks to everybody who served this week. It was a wonderful week. My son included was just just overjoyed every day coming home of the lessons learned and songs sung. And he's a little shy this morning trying to show you the motions at the first song. But uh, if you've heard my testimony, you know that the initial presentation of the gospel for me came from my Sunday school teachers, from my VBS teachers, and from my parents when I was a small, small child. And so I just know that from this last week, there will be testimonies one day of adults looking back, and they'll see the faces of those who were faithful to teach the word of Scripture to them. And so it's not in vain. And so thank you. Thank you for serving this week. If you have your Bibles, first, let me talk about the connection card. If you're a guest with us this morning, my name is Matt. I'm one of the elders here. Shannon is at camp, as you've already heard. Um, with our preteens, uh, and so you get to hear me preach this morning. But if you're a guest, there's connection cards on some of the chairs around you, or you can scan the QR code on a chair behind you. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to learn more about you. If you're looking for a church, we'd love to help you. Even if it's not here, we would love to just see you plugged into community of a Bible-believing church here in the area. So let us help you in that. We're not going to try to sell you anything. Anyway, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 23 with me this morning. In 2012, Abby and I were newly married, living in a small town in Kansas, attending a church that had small groups. Here we have life groups, as you know, you know K group, community group, small group, whatever. That's the thing in churches now. And uh, in this group, in this small town, which was about 15 minutes south of where the, the main church was, we were gathering with four other couples, and our host family, Tim and Amy, um, they had this amazing testimony of being saved out of darkness and now we're serving the Lord and had a passion and a fire, and they're just great. They opened up our home, and they also had a, a felt a calling to start a collegiate ministry for this small college that also existed in the small town where we were gathering. And so after uh, months of preparation and planning and reaching out to the students and the existing leadership that was there uh, for the collegiate ministry that was already there, we, they opened up their home and had this big dinner. We invited the students, the leadership, and it was going to be this cool thing. Our small group was going to play a big role in launching and mentoring and, and, and leading this collegiate ministry. It was just a really cool idea that we were all taking part in. Then the unusual and unexpected happened. They rejected us. The, the, the college didn't want to support it. The existing leadership didn't want to have anything to do with it. The students were told not to come to our group. It was just really weird. Just really weird. We didn't know why the Lord had that for us, why, why that happened. So we, we just pressed on. We continued to gather as a small group and thought that someday in the future we could try again or in another way. But then the real unexpected happened. On August 27, 2012, and, and I'm going to read some excerpts here from a journal that Amy was keeping. It says, Tim began to feel sick. By Friday, he decided it was time to go see the doctor, where they ran several tests. Several days passed, and then on Friday, September 7th, the symptoms returned with a vengeance. Tim called me from work saying he was covered in sweat, was lightheaded, his hip and knee joints hurt so bad that he could barely walk. He needed to go to the doctor as soon as possible. More blood was drawn, and we were sent home to await the results. Meanwhile, the joint pain continued to get worse and worse. Around noon, I called the doctor's office, and again, they told us to get to the ER in Salina. We made arrangements with our mom, or with my mom, to drop our daughter off for her to spend the weekend. We continued to the ER. We arrived at the ER. They began running tests. They ran a CAT scan. They did a chest x-ray, spinal tap. They knew something was wrong, but were having trouble connecting the dots. By evening, we still had no answers, so they admitted Tim to Salina Regional Health Center, the hospital there. The medical staff ran more tests, including orders for a bone marrow biopsy. It wasn't even a half an hour later. The doctor was back to do the biopsy, and that was the first time that we had heard that Tim most likely had leukemia. 
Sunday evening, we received a call from the doctor. He informed us that some of the results had come back on the bone marrow. He told us that it was for sure acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL. He informed us that Tim's type of leukemia was either good, bad, or worse, and that good was already off the table. He suggested that we leave immediately for KU Med Center. We asked for one more day so that we could get our supplies together, our child care lined out for our four-year-old daughter at the time. And she goes on to give many more details, and it's a long post, and she keeps a great journal through this whole journey. I'm not going to read it all to you, but she ends that post with these words. Quote, God has been so good to us. Quote. How can someone write those words after all of that? The question I have for us this morning. And I'm going to give you the answer right now. <laughs> Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that our hope as believers, is secure. That no matter what life brings, our hope is secure in the eternal, and it's because of Psalm 22. As we look into Psalm 23 today, it's important for us to read, understand this psalm in its canonical context, and that is that it comes after Psalm 22. Listen to this reference from Charles Spurgeon. He says the position of the psalm is worthy of notice. It follows the 22nd, which is peculiarly the psalm of the cross. There are no green pastures, no still waters on the other side of Psalm 22. It is only after we read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that we come to, the Lord is my shepherd. We must by experience know the value of blood shedding and see the sword awakened against the shepherd before we shall be able to truly know the sweetness of the good shepherd's care. Psalm 23 does not promise a life free of pain and suffering. Psalm 23 comes after Psalm 22. But Christian, what sets us apart from the rest of the world is our hope and the eternal that Paul has told us is secure. We have been bought with the blood of the Lamb. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he spoke those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've got your Bible, see, Bible turn, turn back a page. Or if, if you've got the ESV like me, it's, it's a couple pages back is where it starts. Look at the first verse. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe he was pointing us back to this prophecy saying, I'm fulfilling what was written a thousand years ago. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you were to spend some time flipping through and reading through Psalm 22, you'll see also that it's foretold that he would be stabbed in his side, verse 14, that he'd be thirsty and have his tongue clean to the roof of his mouth, in verse 15, that he would die on a cross, his hands and feet pierced, in verse 16, that they would be crucified between two transgressors, they would cast lots for his clothes, verse 18. And then Jesus' last words on the cross are, it is finished. Look at the last words in Psalm 22. He has done it. Isn't that amazing? written a thousand years before, foretelling the coming and the death of Jesus on the cross. The hope we have as believers is made possible by Psalm 22 and what Jesus accomplished, the redemption that he brought by his blood on the cross so that we can have Psalm 23 on this side of glory. This is good news for us. Tim understood Psalm 22. Amy understands Psalm 22. And because of that, they could write God has provided. God has been so good to us, even in the midst of such a trial. So my hope for you today is that you would abandon whatever false shepherds would draw you away from your true shepherd, Jesus, and be comforted by his gracious provision in all circumstances, and that you could say, the Lord is my shepherd.
We're going to read Psalm 23 together. It's not a long one, but can we stand? Can we do that together? Let's read Psalm 23 together. Some of you probably have it memorized. I'll be reading out of the ESV. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's read. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may have a seat. That brings me to my first point this morning, which is Jesus is our good shepherd. In John 10, Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd foretold in all the prophecies in the Old Testament. He says they're all pointing to me, but specifically, I believe, juxtaposing himself over Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. So as we begin this morning, we need to realize in verse 1, when David, the author of this psalm, writes, The Lord is my shepherd. David is not making a universal statement about God's relationship with all people in Psalm 23 because we are not all God's children. We are all his creation. We are all his creatures, but we are not all God's children. Only those who believe have been granted the right to become children of God. We enter into his flock, and it is only then that we can say the words, the Lord is my shepherd. David is not making a statement about God's disposition towards all people here. David is making a statement about God's disposition towards him. We like the idea of God as a shepherd, unbelievers and believers alike. It sounds really nice. It reads really easy, easy on the ears. And they take Psalm 23 to mean all people, but David is not making that statement here. In fact, David's not even making a statement about all of Israel. Not all of Israel could say that. The Lord is my shepherd. Not everyone listening to this sermon can say that. The Lord is my shepherd. Only those who understand Psalm 22 and the redemption bought by the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross for them can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Do you know God like this? I'll ask that question again several times in this sermon. I want you to think about it. And think about it, too, the personal nature that David has just driven all the way down to. The Lord is my shepherd, his shepherd. You can say that, too. The Lord, think of the level of personal relationship that's made available here to you. God, we're talking about God. Think about that as we proceed this morning. We are born sinners deserving of God's wrath. So we can't be talking about us in that state, right? So for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You cannot be shepherded by the evil one and simultaneously proclaim that the Lord is my shepherd. John 1.11 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We enter into his flock, and only then can we say the Lord is my shepherd. Notice the order there. You can turn there if you want. It's John 1.11. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it says, To all who did receive him. So he's done something first, allowing us to receive him then believed his name, then he gave the right to become children of God. We'll come back. More on that later. I want to be careful when I say this next thing because I've heard sermons before where 
pastors go off and they talk about how stupid sheep are. I'm not going to say that this morning because we're, we're sheep. <laughs> and I don't want to stand up here and bash you over the head. But I will say, sheep need a shepherd. Amen? Can I get an amen? They're not bright. They need a shepherd. Unless you have the humility to think about yourself in that way, then you don't understand the nature of sin. Because sin is insidious and it can creep in. It takes a sheep and makes him think he's a wolf, is what it does. It takes a sheep and makes him think that he's on top of the world, says, I don't need you, I don't need this, I can go my own way, I know better. So we must remember too, and this is my second point, live with contentment. To restate that, I'll read this. I shall not want means to recognize that sheep need a shepherd. The evil one is always on the prowl and seeking one to devour. Psalm 23 beckons us to keep our eyes fixed on the true shepherd and his provision amongst the distraction. When we listen to the great deceiver, we look to lesser gods or lesser shepherds only to lose hope when they fall short. And they always fall short. So how can someone like Tim and Amy be so content and so comforted in the face of certain death? Why is Psalm 23 such good news to them? Why is it such good news to us? The answer is keeping our focus on Jesus and not on lesser gods. If you're anything like me, living contently doesn't just come naturally. I mean, I even this week, preparing for this sermon, I just was losing it on certain days. Like, I'll say more about that later. <laughs> but in his book, Counterfeit Gods, by Tim Keller, he defines idols from multiple angles. The human heart, he says, is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance, security, safety, fulfillment if we attain them. Here's what the deceiver does to draw us away from our shepherd. He gives us idols. He whispers in our ear. He tries to get us to follow through fear or through love those things rather than our true shepherd. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. A counterfeit shepherd is anything more to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Shannon has talked about these before. He's talked about this book before, so I'm just going to take a quick second to introduce you to the four source idols that Keller uh, gives in his book. I think it's really helpful for us to see what it is that we chase instead of our true shepherd. And so I'm going to throw these on the board. It's going to be a statement that goes along, and I want you to try to identify yourself with what idols you're prone to follow. The first one is power idolatry. Power idolatry says, I have power and influence over others. Does this sound appealing to you? Is the idea of influencing people or circumstances in your favor something that you do or long for? The next one is approval idolatry. It says, I am loved and respected by, and then fill in the blank. Do you desire your Instagram followers, your social media platform followers, your coworkers, your family, your friends? Do you desire their approval? Is that what drives your decision-making process? This could be you. This could be where the evil one tries to sneak in and steal your attention. The next is comfort idolatry. Do you continually, or it says, I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. So do you constantly look to the next thing? Do you increase your standard of living gradually, gradually, always looking for the next thing, only to look back 10 years ago and say, how did we live like that? I mean, a two-bedroom, really? And the, the countertops weren't even granite? How did we do that? And yet at the time, you weren't feeling that. You were just looking to the next thing, only to find after all these years that the next thing never fulfills you. 
You're always looking for the next. Is that you? Too much? Too close? Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> Control. Control says, I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of, these are your type A's, typically. It's dangerous when you think that you can control sin in particular. If you think about, if you think about habitual sin, for example, a person who worships control above the true shepherd, they can build boundaries in their life. They can create a spreadsheet and then create a, a, a diagram that leads them through their day and their schedule that protects them, keeps them from going over here to touch their sin, and they can eliminate that sin from their life. Take an alcoholic, for example. An alcoholic who's a type A who worships control can control himself potentially through building out a structure that keeps him from getting a drink. But after 5, 10, 15 years of not having a drink, and yet every fiber of his soul wants a drink, is that cap free? No, he's not free. He's replaced control idolatry for the true shepherd. I fall for all of these idols at times. Even this week, writing this sermon, wondering if I'm going to get your approval. Trying to control the narrative. Another instance in our life, years ago, I was losing my job. I, didn't, I knew I was. The airplane I was flying was being sold, so I was going to have to find a new job, maybe have to move not knowing how I was going to provide for my family, just experiencing anxiety, a little bit of anger, a little bit of frustration. And I shared all of that with a friend in the lobby of our church at the time, just to kind of spill the beans on him. And he, he just kindly thanked me for sharing, said, I'm sorry this is happening, but in five, ten years, when you look back at this, I don't think you're going to remember the anxiety that you're feeling now. I don't think you're going to remember the emotions and the stresses that you're feeling now about it. I think that you're going to look back and see that the Lord provided and that he was faithful, and that he brought you to where he wanted you next. I realize now that what he did then was just remind me of Psalm 23. And it's a beautiful thing, and that was really helpful for me to see this week. He reminded me that the Lord is my shepherd, and he did provide. How can we live lives with our eyes fixed on the one true shepherd? There's lots of ways, but I'm going to give you one way. Don't be a complacent, open-door Christian. I don't mean he doesn't close some doors. Amen. He closed the door on Tim and Amy when they sought to launch a collegiate ministry. That was a good thing. But he shut that door. And in his providence, we now see that he was protecting them and preparing them for a different season that he was calling them into. That they would not have been able to sustain that while fighting cancer and raising a four-year-old. We didn't see that then. We see it now. But what I mean is to put your yes on the table. Don't wait for a door to open. Pursue your shepherd. Read the scriptures. Know God. Get enough Jesus in you so that when you come to a set of doors, you know exactly which one to bust down. Put your yes on the table and trust him to care for you as you serve him. So how does the Lord provide for us? Well, Psalm 23 doesn't leave us guessing. David tells us. So let's keep looking. Let's move ahead. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3. Notice the pronouns here. He leads me. He, he, he. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. I can't do this by myself. I'm a sheep. Bah. I can't take care of myself. So but there's this idea here of, of God, our shepherd, providing for our physical and spiritual needs. He makes us lie down in green pastures. 
food to eat. He leads us by still waters, water to drink. And we read it this morning when Zach called us to worship in Matthew 6. It reminded me of this. He dresses the lilies with beauty and splendor. How much more will he clothe you? And in Luke 12, it says, if he watches over every little sparrow, I think that's the one we read, how much more does he love you? Then the psalm, psalm shifts to spiritual needs. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Notice the parallels. Two verses or two lines about our physical needs and two lines about providing for our spiritual needs. Verse 4, now we see you. We see all these yous come out. The pronouns have changed, but the direction is the same. We're still talking about the Lord. We're speaking to the shepherd about his protection for us. The pronouns go from the third person to the second person, from he to you, if you're tracking. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I feel no evil. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You, you, you. David is, nay, we are speaking to our shepherd about his protection. You are with me. So here in the valley of the shadow of death, we have your protection and your rod and your staff. His rod and staff are referred to as means of protecting his sheep, fending off enemies and guiding us even in the most difficult places. There's so much imagery here. I j we just don't have time. I told Chan, I was like, maybe you should just take a second week off and I'll just, I'll do two sermons <laughs> on Psalm 23. But then I quickly said, no, never mind. <laughs> I'll just do the one. <laughs> This idea of the valley of the shadow of death is also taken from the shepherding thing. If you think about moving sheep from one place to another, one thing I learned this week by reading commentaries and, and looking at this whole sheep-shepherd relationship is that predatory animals know where sheep are going to go because they see there's green grass over here in this field, but there's not any more green grass over here in this field. So they have to pass through this place, this valley, if you will, to get to the next pasture, to the next green pasture that the shepherd has for them. And so here is a good place for me to lie and wait. I thought that was fascinating. It's a dangerous place that we have to go through to get to the next green pasture. And the psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I feel no evil. Why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, you prepare a table. You anoint my head. You, you, you. I don't fear. Why? Because of you, not because of me. That's a good thing. When we look towards difficult days, this doesn't mean we won't have our moments of loss, doubt, or apprehension. It means that those moments of apprehension are ultimately overshadowed by the protection offered to us from our good shepherd. But even though the shepherd provides, he leads, he feeds, we still encounter real heartache, real suffering, real loss, real pain. And in the midst of that, we need to learn to rest in his comfort, my third point. It's even though I walk, not if, it's when. Let's look at Psalm 23 again. There's a second perspective here. Let me just pause for a second. If you look at Psalm 23, there are really three parts to it, and let's call them movements, I think is the way they describe it. Three movements, and there's two perspectives. So now we've come through looking at the first perspective. Now there's a second perspective. To get the how, you have to look at it again a different set of lenses. We've seen he's become used and it now produces three I statements for us. The first perspective is of the shepherd, but now we're looking at it as a perspective of the sheep. Take some time this week. Go back and read it again and try to put your mindset in the perspectives. One of the shepherd, one of the sheep. Read it twice. 
These I statements are, I shall not want, I shall fear no evil, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. First, I shall not want. Why? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord will provide for me everything that I need, physical and spiritual. So what happens when you come to a point in your life where you didn't have something that you needed? You didn't need it. It's as simple as that. Listen, things may have worked out more comfortably for you, more in your control, more to others' approval had you had it, but if the Lord didn't give it to you, you didn't need it. Life for the Christian is not about accomplishing what you think is best in any given circumstance, what I think is best in any circumstance. Life for the Christian is about resting and trusting in the shepherd to accomplish that which he knows is best in every given circumstance. And newsflash, the death rate is one per person. Not only are we all going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we're all going to die. It's coming one day for us. The good news for the believer is that's not necessarily bad news. We'll talk about that again later. I say that a lot. It also means that I will fear no evil, which is the next I statement. This one's amazing. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, There are dark days for those who belong to God. There are dark days for all of us, but what's the difference? When you and I as followers of Christ walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because his rod and his staff, they comfort us. There are things in this life that can devour me, the perspective of the sheep. So it's a good thing I'm not dependent on me. He's here with me. His rod and his staff protect me. They guide me. He comforts me. The Lord is my shepherd. That's the picture of the shepherd. It means we have to have an eternal perspective. Spurgeon reminds us, once again, that the dying saint is not in a flurry. He is not confounded or ashamed and therefore keeps to his old pace until we, the last I statement, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So now he's prepared a table for me. We have moved beyond the shepherding theme at this point when we come into this movement <clears throat> and we see that he's prepared a feast before us. There's the oil that's poured over our head. It's not a medicinal oil. It's not essential oils. This is a fragrant oil. This is you show up to a feast, a party, if you will. Fragrant perfume, oil is poured on your head. My cup is filled, not just drinking my cup. It's filled to overflowing in this psalm. This is a joyful, this is feasting, this is exciting. This is, to us Americans, this is Thanksgiving dinner to the max. But he doesn't just prepare a table for us. He's prepared a table in the presence of our enemies. We can't look past that. What does that look like? Well, we don't have to look far. Turn back a few chapters in your Bible and you'll see what this looks like. This looks like, son, go slaughter a lamb. Put its blood on the doorpost. Tonight, death is going to come through all of the land of Egypt. Death will go to every house here. But when he comes to our door, we'll be inside at the table with this unleavened bread, with these bitter herbs, feasting, our cups filled full, and he will pass He will not harm us because he will see the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered in our place. This looks like Jesus, thousands of years later, eating the same meal, the same Passover feast, at the same table while there were those out in the night looking to kill him, while Judas was in the room with him. That's what this looks like. The reason we can rest in his comfort is because when the Lord takes away, he never stops giving. I'll say that again. When the Lord takes away, he never stops giving. Think of Job, when Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We've taught that a number of times. Here, 
you heard it. I know you've heard it. But the longer you think about it, the less of good news that is. <laughs> Apart from Psalm 23, that's not great news to hear that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But now here we see, and David tells us, that even when he takes away, he never stops giving that which we need. After months of one step forward, two steps back, through various treatments, countless attempts to heal Tim, things took a turn for the worse. In July 2013, just a few months after Tim's initial diagnosis of leukemia, they threw a party. They opened up their home, Tim and Amy did, and they were calling it a, a going away party, a see you later party, if you will. There's a picture that uh, I found the other day of this party. It's, it's our small group, it's four couples, and we're standing in the front yard of Tim and Amy's house under the shade of this big tree in the middle of the day, and there's smiles on all of our faces, including Tim. I thought about bringing it and showing it to you today, but I, it, it doesn't matter. The fact that we were all smiling is just sort of peculiar to me in the midst of that. Again, I'm just going to start reading some brief excerpts from Tim and Amy's Caring Bridge journal that she wrote just after that party or a few weeks after that party. She says, Tim is blind in both eyes. They're swollen shut. The tumor on the right side of his face extends from his eyebrow down to his upper jaw to his nose. The left side isn't as extreme, but his eye is full and shut. His legs have decided not to work from the knees down. He says they feel tingly and heavy. He can no longer support his own weight and is bedridden. She goes on and gives a lot more details, but she ends this entry with these words. Such a long, long journey, trusting the Lord every step of the way. His plan is perfect and his strength knows no bounds. He gives to his children who are in need. We love him and receive all he has to give. May he continue to provide. Then on November 17th, 2013, Amy writes, Tim went home to be with Jesus early this morning. He looked very peaceful and even had a slight grin on his face. Party in heaven today, and Tim is playing the drums. Happy birthday into real life, my love. <laughs> Tim was a drummer. He played on the worship team. That's why we got along. <laughs> How is it that Tim and Amy could host a party, a going-away party, knowing that if the doctors were correct, he would be leaving this earth in a few days or weeks, and it turned out to be a couple months? How could they say that in the loss, in the midst of such loss and pain? It's because they understood Psalm 22. Because of Psalm 22, the hope, joy, and assurance and provision of Psalm 23, which we've just seen, was on full display in their lives. They trusted the Lord through the valley of the shadow and up to death itself. Today, not only is Amy and some of those members of that small group still in Lindsberg in the town where we were, uh, it has not grown into a larger small group. It has not grown into a collegiate ministry. There's a church now. They planted a church, and that community now has a church where there was none 10, 15 years ago because the Lord was faithful to provide all the way to the green pasture that he had for them in the end of that. He shut a door to provide a season for them to walk through, and now we look back, and there's an entire church, a congregation that exists in that town because of the work that they started all those years ago, and Amy and their daughter Addie was faithful to continue through to this day. The 23rd Psalm is not a picture of a life that's filled with only good all the time. The 23rd Psalm is a picture of life camped around by enemies. It's a picture of a life with peril and danger at every turn. But it's a picture of life that says, in the midst of it all, I shall not want. 
because the shepherd will provide me with everything that I need. It says, as Amy wrote, God has been so good to us. So if you're hearing this right now, I believe it's objective evidence that his goodness and mercy are pursuing you. And that's what that word follow really means. Something else I learned this week. It's not like a, a lagging behind follow sort of there in the shadows. The word follow is an all-out pursuit. He's chasing his children, his sheep. It's an all-out pursuit. The good news of the Bible is that we have all sinned against God. and We've all gone our own way. But he's been true to his word and loves his sheep so much that he would write Psalm 22. So that we can have in this life Psalm 23 and make it a reality for you and for me. That's what the 23rd Psalm is all about. It's about the one who died in our place so that we might enjoy the goodness and the mercy that follows us all of the days of our life until we dwell in the house of the Lord forever, until we go to where Tim went. That's the shepherd's psalm. That's the comfort for the shepherd's people. So I'll ask this morning, do you know the Lord as your shepherd? I remember walking into Tim's See You in Heaven party, wondering what to say. It just was really awkward, really uncomfortable, don't know how to act, didn't know what to do with my hands, didn't know what to say to Tim. But he just had a smile on his face the whole time. Amy had a smile on her face most of the time. (laughs) There's sadness for her. There's sadness for their daughter. But they were able to smile too in the midst of that get-together because they knew he had nothing to fear. That's the point. When the Lord is your shepherd, you have nothing to fear. Even when the worst day of your life, death itself comes, it's no longer the worst day of your life. It now becomes the best day of your life. Amen? Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Redeemer Church. I thank you so much for where you have brought us, what you've called us to. And I thank you so much, Jesus, for coming and fulfilling the prophecies foretold in Psalm 22. I thank you for the provision of Psalm 23. I thank you that you care for us so much that you feed us. You give us water to drink. You restore our soul. I thank you, God, that we can trust your protection. Help us to not stray away from you. Help us not to believe the lies of the idols that lie and camp and wait all around us, looking to distract us and draw us away from what you really have for us. Help us to find peace and fulfillment in you and in you alone, Jesus. May we walk with you all the days of our lives until we go to be with you in eternity. Help us to remember that eternal perspective. Help us to remember that our hope is secure. Help us to remember what you have done, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As Zach leads us in this last song, it's a new song. If you know it, sing it. But if not, just reflect on the words and the lyrics of this song. And I want you to think about your life and think about where you've listened to the lies of the great deceiver. Think about how you can reorient yourself to the truth of the scripture and to the truth of Psalm 23 and what he's provided for you. Let's sing.
As you go out this week, I want to read this benediction over you. This is from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Christ Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed, church.